Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this week's show, we look back to the Austrian Grand Prix. We discuss all of this week's news. And we caught up with F1 tech genius, Craig Scarborough. Stay tuned for more. You're listening to the Cut to the Race podcast. It's lights out and away we go. Welcome to another episode of the Cut to the Race News Roundup Show, the weekly show covering the news, rumours and opinions from the F1 world, brought to you by the Formula Nerds News Team. I'm Dan, and I'm joined once again by Charlotte. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks, mate. Looking forward to it today. Glad to hear it. And Jay, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Dan. Uh, it was a good, good race on Sunday. It was one of the few times when someone can dominate a race but the midfield battle was just so good that it actually made it really intriguing. And not even just the midfield battle, the battle for the podium positions was good. So I'm pretty pleased. It was. It was a very good race. Before we talk about the race, we're recording this on Thursday. Wednesday night saw England beat Denmark in the semi-finals of the Euros. Surely it's coming home now. I think I think we ought to calm down. It was a it was a bit lucky. What? The penalty was never a penalty. Ouch. We need to keep our composure. It's not over till it's over. Italy are a very good team, a better team than Denmark. They'll pose a completely different threat and they'll be up for it as well. So let's compose ourselves. I mean, what did happen yesterday is that Roger Federer got knocked out of Wimbledon. How crazy is that? But no one's talking about that because the whole country's deluded. Well, yeah, that, that Roger Federer lost a set six love for the first time ever in his Wimbledon history as well. But anyway, this is an F1 podcast. We all know it's coming home. Jay's just being pessimistic. Let's look back to the Austrian Grand Prix. It was all right. Compared to the steering Grand Prix, it was decent. Charlotte, what do you think? I loved it. And it was a roller coaster of emotions. And I'd also really like to bring up the fact that I believe that I deserve an apology, especially from Dan, because he completely shut down my race prediction last week. And let me just remind everybody, I said that I, I thought as a bold prediction that it was going to be a Lando podium. And I optimistically said that Daniel Ricciardo would finish in P6. He did, in the end, finish in P7. However, I still oh, believe... That- so your prediction Hold didn't come on. true. No, 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 not so fast. I still believe I deserve an apology. You shut it down like I was insane. Like, it was the most crazy thing to have I've, as I've ever said. And let's be real, I think I did pretty well. Yeah, it was close, but it didn't happen, did it? Danny Rick didn't finish in the top six. It was. Yeah, it was, but Lando was got close. a podium and he was one... 
freaking place away <laughs> from being P6. What about like half an apology? You just say saw and then we move on. <laughs> All right, I'll do that. I'll do that. All right. Saw about that. What did you guys think of the podium? I thought it was quite a good podium, personally. I know what you're hinting at, Dan. <laughs> it's very obvious. I don't know what I don't know what you mean. And I would just like to add, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not slating Bottas. I'm not. He did a good. I'm no. Don't get like Dan just gave me a look, but I'm just saying he did a good race. It was a really good result. I was happy to see him on the podium. However, Lando should have had P2. No, I'm saying he could have. He could have had more of an opportunity if he didn't have that five second penalty. So I'm just saying that it could have been a role reverse with P2 and P3. But I was still happy. I think Bottas, he drove well on Sunday, but I do think he got a tad lucky. Because, no, you can't grimace at me, Dan, because you got to admit he got lucky. He started P5 and everyone before him, other than Verstappen, had some kind of issue which made them fall behind. And you can say, oh, Bottas kept his nose clean, Bottas done this, Bottas done that. But let's be real. So Perez was the first to go. He was on the gravel. Lando had the five-second penalty. And then Hamilton obviously had that, that floor issue. So he was kind of gifted P2. He drove well. Don't be wrong, he drove well. But he wasn't outstanding. He wasn't a 10 out of 10 performance. But they were issues of their own making, I would argue. You know, Lando... I'm not saying he did. The FAA deemed Lando pushed Perez off, blah, 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 whatever. That's their own fault that that's happened. Hamilton broke his own car on the Term 10 codes. You know, Boss has kept it nice and clean. What more is the guy meant to do? I mean, it wasn't a vintage Valtteri performance. Let's say that. It wasn't vintage. I've seen him drive better. Did that make sense? So, I mean, he lost out to Perez in qualifying, to Lando in qualifying. I know Lewis did too, but he was, Valtteri did lose to Hamilton in qualifying as well. So... It wasn't a vintage weekend for him. I think that Japan 2019, he was awesome. Uh, the USA 2019, he was awesome. So yeah, I think he was good, but he wasn't quite amazing. Go on, Charlotte. I would like to say that I, I was happy when Mercedes did actually change their instructions and say, right, you can now race Lewis. Don't no. even get me going on that. Don't oh, even get me going on I that. I know, but I was happy that he could because I was, I understood the reasoning why, because obviously, sorry, Dan, Lewis is in championship contention compared to Bottas, but I still thought that he should have the chance and they did. So there you go. I'm happy. Okay, we've spoken about this on the Race Review Show and I gave my thoughts there, so be sure to give that one a listen. All right, let's move on to the news. Um, Lewis Hamilton has signed a two-year contract extension with Mercedes. I don't think that's that surprising, is it? It was just a matter of when it was announced. Yeah, it wasn't that surprising. He's on insane form again and again every single year and he's just not losing it. And, you know, I really, really want to see him get the eighth title, possibly this year, who knows? Um, and at the end of the day, he is the best driver in our lifetime in, in F1 history. He's the most poles, the most wins, and now joint uh, world championships, possibly more. So it's great. And I love what he stands for in the sport that, you know, he is trying and wants to encourage more diversity in the sport, which is something I still believe we need to see. So I'm super happy. I think it's great. You pleased to see him stick around for a couple more years, Jay? I think it's it's really good for Formula One as a sport itself. You need your top stars, and while Verstappen is a top star, I don't think he quite has that global appeal yet that Hamilton has, and he's probably got a little way 
to go until he gets to that kind of level of fame. So to keep him Hamilton for another couple of years and then maybe have that part of the torch moment where Verstappen becomes the top dog or Leclerc or maybe even Lando become the top dog in a few years' time. So good for Formula One, good for Mercedes, probably good for Hamilton. He's desperate for that eighth world title. And I think it'll be good for Hamilton to test himself under the new regs which are coming in next year. Can he still do it when maybe the field's a bit closer? Can he still do it against all the young guns with Ivla Klerk and Norris get competitive cars and again with Verstappen? So it's good for, I think it's good for everyone. Of course, this poses the obvious question as to who his teammate's going to be. It seems to be all that Sky Sports spoke about throughout the entire Austrian Grand Prix weekend. Do you think there's any chance of Bottas staying in that seat? Either of you? Well, I, I, I don't, I don't know. After the race, George was just smiling from ear to ear, and he was chatting with Toto. Obviously, we don't know what they were saying, but it was all looking very happy over there. And you know, George made a couple of comments saying, you know, he'll be in a Mercedes seat no matter what, in the sense of an engine with a Mercedes engine car. That did not make sense, but there you go. We know what you mean. We know what I mean. Yeah, that was yeah. So. I guess we've just got to see what happens potentially at Silverstone, hey? I think that this Lewis Hamilton contract extension has slightly, slightly, slightly ruined Russell's chance of getting into the team, especially at the end of this season anyway. Because I think everyone knows that Bottas and Hamilton, they have quite a harmonious relationship. I don't think Total Wolf wants a repeat of the, the Rosberg-Hamilton years where they were taking each other out seemingly every race so Bottas I think he does still have a chance I do think Russell is still the favourite but Toto if he wants to keep that nice sort of happy workplace then he'll go for that I mean to be fair you could easily say oh well George Russell is he going to ruffle any feathers but I think he's a bit more determined than Valtteri he's a bit more he's got a bit more fire in his belly than Valtteri has so I think if anyone's gonna ruin that harmonity at Mercedes it would be George rather than Valtteri so maybe Toto will go for that but also with the 2022 new regulations I think it is a good idea to have Valtteri so you have someone who knows the car who understands it compared to someone who will be coming in completely new which I know this has been argued before but I also do think that it is really important and I just think it'll be really unfair to see Bottas go to a much lower team um, for next year when really he's not that bad he's not that um, bad but oh sorry then I was going to say oh, sorry, he go I think Bottas has had a fair crack at the whip he's been there for what, five years now well, I think it's five years now he's had he's oh, in his lot of opportunities he's, had, he's, he's won what nine races out of I want to say five years say 20 races a season what's that 100 and 100 races nine out of 100 I mean that's not bad but Maybe it's time to bring some fresh blood through a bit of, like I said, George Russell's got the fire in his belly to prove he's got pace. Can he do it? I think George can be as good as Valtteri in that Mercedes seat. And if George doesn't get it now, when does he get it really and truly? Because he's seen Verstappen go straight into a Red Bull early in his career. He's seen Pierre Gasly, who won uh, GP2 before. He what done a year at Alpha uh, Toro Rosso straight to Red Bull Charles Leclerc done a year of Alfa Romeo or Salvo as it was back then straight into the Ferrari he's seen all these young drivers who have the same or similar potential to himself go straight into the top team where he's been 
forced to stick around at Williams for three or four seasons. So if, if you're George, you're frustrated and maybe it is time to give him a shot. I do second that. I mean, I'm not going to give my view on this because I've given my view on this many times and everyone knows where my view stands on this. Um, So we'll move on. We'll move on. But I don't think anything's guaranteed yet. I don't think a mid-season swap will happen. I know that's been a rumour. But we'll just have to wait and see. Just have to wait and see. Uh, Lando Norris is on 10 penalty points now, which means he's only two away from a race ban. I think at least eight out of these 10 are ridiculously harsh penalty points from what I can remember. But... He's in a bit of trouble, isn't he? So let's let's say Lando got two penalty points in this year's British Grand Prix, which is the, I don't know, 18th of July. Those two would then come off the 18th of July next year. Okay, let's move on to some Australian Grand Prix chat. Um, it's been cancelled, basically. It was rescheduled and now it's been cancelled completely. Um, a few venues have come up in replacement. Are you guys sad to see it go? I am. I quite like the Albert Park circuit. No. Um, oh, that does sound really brutal, but <laughs> I'm not that sad to see it to see it go. I think it's good as a season opener. Lots of Aussie fans, crazy people, good atmosphere, barbecues, and it's at like six in the morning, which is kind of weirdly cool as well. But um, six in the morning UK time. I think there's a lot of better tracks out there. It's not that good of a track. I can't remember the last time I saw a good Australian Grand Prix. Okay, no one. See, no one else had had any good Australian Grand Prix either. That's how. It's, it's, it's just a bit naff. It's a bit, I don't want to say Sochi-like, but it's a bit Sochi-like. C- compared to all of the semi-permanent, so well, Australia, Canada, Sochi, I think it's closer to Sochi than it is to Canada. So I'm not too sad to see it go, and I'm happy it opens up a few new possibilities, which I'll go into soon. I get, I get your point. I do get your point. I think the thing with Australia that normally makes it really exciting is that it's the season opener and everyone's gone so long without Formula One, they just want racing. But they were making changes to the circuit this season. They're doing all sorts. I was actually looking forward to seeing if it made better racing and now we don't get to see it. Yeah, that is, that is true. But maybe luckily for Australia, if they can host the season opener in 2022, it's not that big of a gap. They're not going to use a, a whole year. They'll lose six months as like a small silver lining for people from melbourne melbournians i think they're called <laughs> melbournians is that what they're actually called or is yeah, that what you've made facts. up that's facts look it up on google Definitely it's, not not. Mel- it's not a melbourneite or something that's what you say melbourneite that melbourneite. sounds like some soviet stuff oh yeah it does a little bit um <laughs> some names have been some names have been kicking around as to what could replace replace uh, the albert park circuit what ones would you guys like to see I want to go back to Bahrain and see the outer track. So it's like the Sakir uh, Grand Prix. Why are you all rolling your eyes at me? I think it would be great. Last year was so exciting, especially because George was in the Mercedes. But I really loved it. I thought it was fun and I really like Bahrain. It's just, you can overtake that track. That's what we want to see, no? Yeah, Bahrain is beautiful. And it is. it was a cool like one-off Sakir oval race. But I just lament the fact that we're going to two tracks in the same season. Like this double header in Austria, I weren't a fan of that. I know logistically it would have been tough for them to put a new track in so late, but I'd have loved to have seen one of the German tracks, probably Hockenheim come in. So in terms of placement for Australia, Sepang, Malaysia, it's, it's in a similar part of the world. That's a of, great not track. Really, I'd love to see that. But I'd love to see that, especially late in the year, crazy weather, you never know what happen. Or I've put a few logistical options down that are in the Middle East, which obviously help with the final two races in uh, Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi. I've put, and these are never visited F1 tracks before, 
Qatar. There's a, there's a track in Los Isle, which is it's a bit of a MotoGP track. That's not that good, but could be interesting to go there. Kuwait, there's a new track there. Looks quite cool. Or my one I'm really pushing for is there's a track in Dubai. It's really good. Crazy um, elevation changes. It's got barriers on the outside. It's old school. And it's got some good long straights as well. So I'm pushing for Dubai. And it's logistical sense for Formula One. Please go there and make my dreams come true. Does it have gravel? Uh, I don't think so. Oh. It's, it's a bit too new for gravel, but it does, it's it's sort of street circuit S. Do you remember Korea back in the day when it had lots of barriers on the outside, even though it was, oh, Dan, yeah. Dan, Dan you're too young to remember Korea, but Korea was a cool <laughs> track way back when. Maybe Korea, that could be cool. India, the Bud International Circuit, we could go there as well. Let me just throw <laughs> old names in the hat. Anymore? <laughs> just throw old names in the hat. Yeah, India, that was a cool track. Just every country. <laughs> Korea, um, Fuji, and it's like, it's, like it's it's not quite similar to Suzuka. It's got sort of tw- twisty kind of. It's got a massively long straight, a high chance of rain, which might be cool. But obviously, Japan. There's a there's a few question marks over the Japanese Grand Prix as well. So, I would love to see one of the multiple tracks I listed. But my guess is F1 will probably just do double headed Lakota or go back to Bahrain. I just hope it doesn't go to Abu Dhabi or something like that because that would just be a bit boring, and I don't want to see that. So. Fingers no, crossed that ain't Abu Dhabi. No one wants to see that. Exactly. No see that. Anyway, that's Jay's geography lesson over. He's listed as many countries in the world that he could remember. And he's now going to talk to us about the engine chat going on in Formula One, which he's more informed of than me. So, Jay, what's going on with the whole engine side of the sport at the moment? Well, were you not impressed by my knowledge of old racetracks? I think that was pretty cool. Anyway, it was great. Thank you, Charlotte. Someone approves. Engine talk. So, uh, I think on the Saturday, during the qualifying day of the Austrian Grand Prix, there was a, a little meeting for some big people. So it was like the bosses of Formula One, and it was going to say some representatives from Ferrari, Mercedes and Renault, and also from Audi and Porsche to discuss the new engine regulations which are coming into force in 2025. Now F1 bosses have said that these were productive talks and they could still, there's more to come in the future for these. But I feel like they've sort of agreed on some set points. So firstly, there can be standard parts to reduce the costs. So that might be cool for more people. That might help to lure in more manufacturers, such as Audi and Porsche. Fully sustainable fuel, which I think is quite a big one for Formula One. They want to be uh, net carbon neutral by 2030. So that's a big one, getting the cars to not produce any uh, carbon emissions. And also a stronger focus on electric power but they're still going to maintain internal combustion engines and units, mostly because they'll be using sustainable fuels, so they'll still be able to run that with that older style of, of engine still. I think there's quite a lot of uh, positivity from the the bosses that were there. Uh, Total Wolf seemed to really like it. The only sort of person who was dragging his feet through the mud was, of course, Christian Horner. He was saying, and to be fair, I do agree with him, that if we sort of go more electric, the sound is going to be maybe worse than it is now and we can't go full on sort of Formula E style. And I think everyone misses those those loud engines, the days of the V8, the days of the V10, that 2004 V10. Do you remember last year when Mick Schumacher drove his dad's car around Mugello? Oh, that noise was wonderful, more beautiful than Emily Sanday's song. So I'm really looking forward to um, the future of Formula One. Innovation seems cool, but I'm hoping that they don't go full on Formula E and we get those weird sounding engines. 
Before we started recording here, Jay was talking about his love of his love of all different types of music. I didn't expect Emily Sandy to come up in that oh, list. She's got a beautiful voice, though. Beautiful voice. Wow. Okay. We got a stand. What can I say? I'm I'm, I'm diversified. <laughs> like my knowledge of racetracks. <laughs> Right, okay. To pair with the engine and technical chat, earlier in the week, Jay and Charlotte, you caught up with Craig Scarborough, who is someone that actually knows what he's talking about, uh, unlike us. Uh, That was really interesting. What did you talk to him about? Oh, it was absolutely amazing, especially to actually hear someone's technical point of view on things, compared to what we know anyways. So we spoke about this year's um, cars. We spoke about the regulations for next year, his predictions of who's going to win the championship battle with both constructors and drivers for this year. And it was just super exciting to get his viewpoints on this. So today we are joined with Craig and uh, just wondering, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and introduce yourself to everyone? Okay, well, my name is Craig Scarborough, best known as Scarbs or Scarbs Tech on social media. And for now, oh, over 20 years, I've been a journalist covering the technical side of motorsport, mainly Formula One, which happens to be probably the most technical side of sport, but it, you know, it, it, it stretches other directions. And I, you know, just uh, fascinated by the little details and the continuing technical story in, in Formula One and try and get that across to both the, the more engineering led fans and perhaps the fans that, you know, don't know any of this stuff and are, uh, you know, what, what you might call the um, sort of, you know, the new fans in F1, just trying to you know, explain all of these little bits and pieces. So nowadays people, We'll probably see you on F1 TV, making things which are really complicated, a bit more easy to understand. But do you remember your first ever time you was really interested in Formula One cars in this kind of technological stuff? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, Let's just kind of delve back. Um, In terms of cars and Formula One, um, they were kind of always in the background. None of my family were kind of big into Formula One or anything like that. I didn't have any other people watching it on a regular basis back in the, oh, I hate to say it, in the 1970s. Um, So I think the first time I knew about it was probably around the time when James Hunt and Nicky Lauda were having their success. We had the Tyrrell six-wheeler. And I know the first time, perhaps the first time I heard anything technical about Formula One is that the Tyrrell six-wheeler had won a race but was uh, disqualified for being two inches too long. And despite being, you know, probably less than 10 years old at the time, it kind of just pricked into my ears and go, <laughs> what's that all about? Um, and then I kind of, I grew up making plastic model kits. And once, you know, making a, a Spitfire or a Hurricane became t- too simple, I moved on to some of the F1 cars, which were massively more complicated especially got into the bigger scale and i was you know putting piece 24 to piece 25 and thinking well what does that do how does that work and it's all kind of just blossomed from there and um you know with the explosion of the internet you know i've I've managed to find something of an audience i guess to uh, explain this stuff so also i think um i'm right in saying you've been to a lot of test events for the models of the formula one cars and things like that so what has been the most memorable one that you've been to? What was the most standout or your favourite part of it? Oh, um, yeah, I mean, lots of the launches are, um, you know, at the start of the year. I mean, for me, that is, you know, that's the best time of the year. You know, you've got the expectation for the new rules and who's going to do something exciting and different. 
And then you go there and, you know, you're trying to second guess what everyone's been doing and be the first person to explain something. Um, I think probably the most exciting one would have been, and uh, I'm not very good with years, but it was the, the Williams with the walrus nose. Um, and before all the press were allowed in, um, one of the photographers says, are you going to like this one? And showed me a very quickly a picture on his PC screen. And it's like, OMG, <laughs> this is going to be good. Um, and I think that was that was probably the one that really sticks in my mind. I think um, perhaps the other one, just a few years later, is when um, Renault, was it Lotus? I think it may have been Lotus at that point, had the front exit exhaust. And we we're all desperately trying to see uh, where the exhausts were and explain it. And, uh, you know, hanging over the... The, the ledge of the roof, at, uh, I think it was Valencia, uh, looking down as the car went back into the pitch, trying to see things. I think that was probably the, the one where we maybe got the scoop first. Um, but every season, there, there's always something that really excites me with the new cars. And I think 2022 is going to be you know, even more so. So was that was that Woolworths Nose Williams, has that been your favourite innovation? I mean, you've lived through DAS, uh, Double <laughs> Diffuser, like you said, the six-wheel Tyrrell. Has that been your favourite um, innovation? No, I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't. I think it was the most memorable. I don't think, in terms of engineering terms, it was the most exciting. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if I've got a favourite sort of technical uh, development. Um, I mean, I'm. I've. I've got a, a slightly odd sort of point of view. I. I prefer to see things that are truly innovative because they're something no one's ever thought of and are a great idea, as opposed to something that's just to work around the regulations. So DAS and the double diffuser were all kind of workarounds. They weren't, you know, things that were going to have any longevity. So for me, things almost more like Tyrrell's raised nose um, back in uh, 1990, I think it was, 91. Uh, you know, that, for example, was something that really kind of piqued my interest. And, um, you know, it's more things that like that. So that kind of also sort of skews some of my favourite designers and favourite cars uh, in the sport as well. So is it fair to say that you have a, a favourite designer or is that a question that's a bit too too personal? Um, I've got a few. Um, I mean, certainly as I was younger, I was really inspired by uh, a guy called Dr. Harvey Postlethwaite, who was the Tyrrell designer and a Ferrari designer and uh, moved to Honda as well. Uh, was sadly taken before his time. He kind of really inspired me because he was, um, you know, kind of bringing a bit more of a thoughtful engineering approach into Formula One rather than just kind of, you know, wacky ideas and stuff like that. And that slightly follows on probably the, the person that I've got the most admiration for is a guy called John Barnard. Um, you'll probably know more from his McLaren days where he invented the carbon fiber monocoque, um, the Coke bottle, and he's got a, a fantastic autobiography. And as you read through it, you know, all these little things that we take for granted as details on Formula One cars today invariably came from his designs initially and some of his you know, personal uh, work on the drawing board. So he's probably the one that I, I, I hold in the, in the highest esteem in terms of innovation. That's really cool. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I kind of just want to ask as well. So over the last few races, and I guess really in general this season, Red Bull just are beginning to look unstoppable. And the developments they've made has is just insane. But Mercedes do seem to be struggling, which I believe is due to some aerodynamic changes. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But um, yeah, I'd just like to hear your viewpoint on it a bit more and offer your technical viewpoints. 
Okay. Um, I mean, it, it's it, it's it's a fairly fairly convoluted story to kind of get to the end of the Austrian Grand Prix. But yeah. over the winter, there were uh, regulation changes planned uh, that were agreed by everybody. Um, the, because the cars are going to be largely carried over into this year, that they would become far too quick with just another year's development on the aero, which would be too much for the tyres. So everyone agreed to kind of cut downforce back. And there was a number of measures around the floor, around the rear wheels, uh, and the brake ducts around the rear wheels as well, which were aimed at reducing downforce. And, th and they did that. And everyone started to kind of catch up. Now, again, without having real data, there is um, um, a point of view that says cars with low rake, which is the, the Mercedes and the Aston Martin, um, suffered more from these regulations than other teams did. Now, when I first looked at these regulations last year, it looked as though it was actually going to harm the high rake cars more than the other way around. So I think both have lost something. And maybe it's easier for the high-rate cars to have clawed that back than perhaps it was for some of the low-rate cars. So Mercedes did a really struggled in testing. And then they managed to find, as we got to the first races, a, a way of setting that car up that allowed it to be quick around the lap and looked after its tyres in the race. Uh, and a quick in qualifying too, the kind of the three, you know, sort of the Venn diagram of what makes a really quick car. Um, Red Bull... Um, took a little while to get their car going this year. And they certainly had some issues with their power unit over the first few races. That means that they couldn't run their full power modes in the way they wanted to until they had a reliability update, which again is a part of another big debate that I won't explain right now. Um, but I think what we've found is, is Mercedes have kind of maybe run out a little bit of steam uh, in the direction they've been going, which has been to run lots of downforce, particularly with the rear wing to get the tires looked after. And you know, kind of historically, because they would qualify on the front row and run away with the race and you know, they weren't having to overtake people, that philosophy really works. And clearly it's worked for them all the way back to 2014. Meanwhile, Red Bull have now got this car that um, has got lots of downforce, um, so much so that they can actually uh, take some of their rear wing off. And Red Bull are running a lot less rear wing than uh, virtually every other team on the grid. Gives them... Um, you know, lots of straight line speed, but the car still got the inherent downforce to look after the tyres in the race. So they're now getting the best of both worlds where they can qualify quickly, they're fast on the straights and they're looking after their tyres. And Mercedes simply can't compete with that complete package. So Mercedes need to do something slightly different. And it's it's been difficult for them. We've got, we know there's some updates coming for Silverstone um, and they're being quite guarded about you know, this isn't a B-spec car. This isn't a massive upgrade that's going to suddenly give them loads more pace. I think they just need to kind of tweak their setup a little bit. They need to decide, are they going to go for pole or are they going to go for race tire management? And the two aren't, you know, it's not a perfect seesaw between one and the other, but there is a relationship. If you're using your tires hard, that means they work really well in qualifying typically. And for most race conditions, it means if you work your tires hard, you use your tires up too quickly. Um, and Mercedes just need to play about with that setup a bit. So despite the fact that we've been through sort of two sort of street races, if you can call back a street race, which still doesn't feel quite right, and then you've got you know, a rather rod ball circuit like Austria, Red Bull really have been able to run away with a setup that they've got. Now we're coming into some rather different circuits, Silverstone, uh, I think Hungary will again kind of definitely tip back towards uh, Red Bull, but then we go to Belgium and then, you know, those final flyaway races, whatever they may be, um, could suit Mercedes. So I don't think this championship is over yet. And I don't think Mercedes are completely at sea 
with their car. And I don't think they need to necessarily throw loads of new parts at it. Just, you know, work out their approach to the entire weekend um, and, you know, use that to, to fight where Red Bull have got to. So, you know, I think there is some heart for the Mercedes fans, but equally, you know, there is there, there's lots of optimism for, for the Red Bull fans. I mean, I think this fact that the battle will be tightly balanced all the way through to those last races. Do you think as well that there's been a change of philosophy at Red Bull? Because I know before their setup, especially when they were dominant with Sebastian Vettel a, a few years ago, was very much on downforce and they'd really struggle at tracks with long straights like Austria, like Monza, like Spa. But now we see they're two tenths quicker than Mercedes on the straights. Do you think there's been a change of philosophy or do you think now that that Honda power unit is just so good and they've just got that car nailed in terms of development that they are able to, to run a higher downforce car but still have that straight line speed? Um, I don't think it's necessarily a change of philosophy. I mean, I think if you look back historically, even through the successful years of Red Bull, they've always been slightly down on power with their Renault power units. You know, it, it's been well known. Renault has lots of great qualities in their power unit in terms of its efficiency, reliability, drivability. Um, you know, sort of before 2014, it was also to do with how they would manage the exhaust flow as well. Um, but it just didn't have that outright grunt on the straights to allow Red Bull to you know really get high speeds. Um, and Red Bull over all of those years, and they're really kind of almost in some respects reaping the benefits of that now, they've developed a very efficient chassis. It creates lots of downforce without creating lots of drag. So they don't tend to run big wings. And, you know, despite, as you say, they've always somewhat struggled on high speed circuits. They've been able to really kind of reduce their rear wing to an absolute minimum, particularly at places like Monza and still get performance out of their car. You know, they've had they've had race wins at these low down low downforce high speed circuits because the car is able to run so little wing that the the power deficit is kind of, you know, overcome. And I think we're getting to that stage now. So where you see Red Bull at the moment is they're still got this very efficient chassis that's got low drag, but lots of downforce even with a small rear wing. But now the Honda power unit is kind of caught up with Mercedes, which is, you know, it's taken Honda quite some time, you know, since they came back into the sport in 2015. It had some very difficult years um, and were certainly sort of knocked back middle of last year with some of the technical directives that reduced some of the uh, ERS strategies that they were able to employ with that power unit that no one else, I believe, was using in quite the same way. But this year now, particularly now they've had this power unit upgrade, the reliability upgrade, which means not that the engine is any more powerful it just means that they're able to run that maximum level of power reliably so you know they're kind of getting back up to their baseline and that has really made the difference in this kind of straight line speed thing that we're seeing and uh you know um i i don't think the honda is any more powerful than the mercedes because the the mclaren's top speed proves that uh and to an extent williams as well um you know Mercedes' lack of straight line speed is down to the amount of rear wing that they're running. And if you see the two side, cars side by side, you would see you know, visibly the difference in the rear wing. The bigger rear wing you've got, the more drag you have, uh, which means the slower the car goes uh, in a straight line. So I think you know, Red Bull have kind of reached that kind of sweet spot of engine, um, chassis, um, tire management that's just bringing the rewards at the moment. So should we, as fans, be maybe slightly concerned because I think a couple of races ago when they introduced the more rigid rear wings and the FIA said we're going to put more load in on, on, on their test for them and people maybe thought that Mercedes would come back into it and Red Bull would maybe struggle because obviously their rear wing used to be a bit more bendy but 
firstly, it hasn't played out like that at all. They've dominated, especially the last two rounds in Austria. So should we be concerned? Because the way it sounds is Red Bull are going to be very good around tracks which require a bit more downforce, like Silverstone, Hungary, which is both coming up. But equally, they're so good in a straight line. After that, you've got after the summer break, you've got Monza and you've got Spa. Are they going to be good at every single track? I'm going to be able to reel them in. Um, again, it's it's really difficult at this stage to predict. If if everything stayed exactly the same as it is now, we, I think we could have a bit more certainty. But you have to remember, at Silverstone, we've got this new rear tire coming in. Uh, the new rear tire is um, part. Well, I mean, Pirelli have said for different reasons, but it's partly to make a stronger rear construction so that the tire can cope with the loads that these cars are putting into it. And again, that is a, a, a subtle reference to Baku, perhaps, but equally, as you say, you've got some uh, tracks coming up with some very high cornering loads, Silverstone, uh, Spa, um, Monza to an extent, and then potentially some of the fast tracks at the end of the year on the flyaway races. How the teams react to this rear tyre is almost going to be this pivotal in the season as everything that's happened up to date, because if it doesn't suit the Red Bull, if it allows Mercedes to be able to knock some of the rear wing off and not wear the tyres out in the race, um, you know, again, there is everything to play for and it's completely unpredictable. It's nothing that we can say with any degree of certainty. But um, even without that, I mean, I think you do have to think, um, you know, what are Mercedes' strengths? Where, where could they fight back? And Mercedes, historically, have always been very good at circuits with lots of... Um, uh, high energy corners again as I said Silverstone and you know uh, Spa and stuff and depending on the ambient temperatures there it could really suit the, the Mercedes chassis um, and it could allow them to work their tyres better through the race so you know there, there's there's a lot to balance here not every race uh, is going to suit uh, Red Bull going forwards um, and Mercedes just have to you know maybe think carefully about their approach at some of these high energy circuits particularly if the uh, the weather is suiting them so in your opinion who do you predict is going to be winning the championship this year in both drivers and constructors what do you reckon oh, oh there's a loaded question yeah. um <laughs> put you on the spot oh, um i mean i think constructors is definitely looking like it's going towards red bull um i think despite his problems at last race i think perez has proven to be a fantastic uh, driver in the second Red Bull, um, and I think yeah. the team are right there. Um, I think Red Bull appears to be making less mistakes than Mercedes have been, and you know there have been all sorts of issues from you know driver and team at Mercedes uh, through this year, which is something we're not used to seeing. Um, mm. uh, we haven't really seen that sort of since their first years of dominance, when they were you know really being caught out by their own sort of. Um, uh, lack of confidence in their ability to win races. Now, you know, it's almost, it's kind of come back to haunt them again. You know, it's like, oh, what do we do? Um, so I think constructors, I'd, I'd confidently say Red Bull. Um, drivers, oh, well, I mean, it's obviously only going to be two, two drivers. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think that is that is quite clear. There's almost like two champions or three championships. There's the uh, the, the A drivers, shall we call them, at the top two teams, and then the B drivers at the top two teams with, you know, uh, a couple of star guests maybe trying to bu uh, bundle into that. Norris uh, has got, you know, quite a good points tally as well. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think at the moment the safe money and the best, uh, and maybe not the best odds would be on the Verstappen to take the drivers. Um, 
But by no means would I be surprised if, if Hamilton won that championship as well. Um, but it may take until the last race to kind of recoup the, you know, the, the loss um, uh, in points where he stands at the moment. Yeah, sorry, we, we, we did just put you completely on the spot there. But you, you, you <laughs> I don't normally make driving well. team predictions, but yes. <laughs> I just wanted to throw a, a slight curveball at you. And now, of course, the pandemic is still quite a big problem and races, especially the fly ones, are being cancelled at quite a a quick rate do you think that a longer european season might favor mercedes where the temperatures are a bit cooler and they tend to do a bit better but maybe more rain um, rain is can be a great equal yeah i mean i think that's a good point i mean i can't see um where that where the calendar's sitting at the moment how we could extend the european season too much further because you know um monza in september is already starting to get in towards the autumn we've had some pretty dreadful weather in monza late that year. I think there were some people who were kind of looking at the cancellation of the Australian Grand Prix and thinking we should go to you know, the Nürburgring or Imola or Turkey or something. And it's like, what, in November? Um, not unless we can have like studded rain tires and uh, snow plows on the front of the, the cars. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if we could, it definitely would suit Mercedes. Um, I think the choice in circuits that we may or may not go to, um, you know, uh, is could very, you know, tip the very fine balance in the championship, um, even if we are going to some of the flyaway races, because, you know, obviously not everywhere is having fantastic weather um, that late in the year, even on the other side of the globe. So, um, yeah. Um, yeah, as I say, it's such a finely balanced championship. Small decisions by the FA like that could really, you know, make all the difference uh, this year. Um, and in regards to, like, the midfield teams, like, lower teams, so... If we exclude Mercedes and Red Bull from this one, um, which constructors do you think have like, from a technical view again, like who do you think has made the best um, improvements this year? And like, or the part, like a certain part from a car that you think, wow, this was really innovative and really caught you by surprise this season. Um, I mean, this year, to be honest, has been almost disappointing in the technology. Um you know, because so much of the cars were carried over, there wasn't a lot that you could play about with um, because the aero rules forced the teams to look at the floor area, not other areas of the car. There isn't really anything that's kind of jumped out at us that's really kind of um, surprised us. Um, I think what you'll find, what I'm finding, is that it's interesting to see where the teams have been able to really develop despite all of these restrictions that they're kind of placed under. And I mean, I think the, the prime one would be McLaren, who are now, <laughs> you could say, almost the de facto third team. Um, you know, they've they've really kind of built the momentum they've had over the past few years. And um, despite you know Daniel Ricciardo still struggling a little bit in the uh, in the handling of that car and how to get the best out of it, um, it almost conversely to um, how Lando Norris is finding that car this year, I think McLaren really have found a, you know a, a fantastic position for themselves, and that's been really quite nice because we've seen them be you know at the, the lowest of the lows um, over the past few years. And a historic team, whether you're a fan of them or not, um, I think it's always good to see. I think equally, uh, Williams have made something of a renaissance again. Austria has kind of shown that whether that is track specific. Or we will see them kind of maybe drop back down to their more usual Q3, uh, sorry, Q1 bordering into Q2 um, performance. You know, that's hard to say. But certainly they found something in that chassis and the way they're working with it to really, you know, give us a little bit of optimism. Again, you know, historic team 
is isn't struggling quite so badly. Um, I think perhaps one of the most improved teams, arguably, would be Ferrari, um, who again were on their knees at one point. You know, almost struggling with Williams last year. Um, they're having a bit of an up down season. They, uh, like many people, are struggling a little bit with the tyres, and um, I think they're. Uh, now starting to understand the tyres a little bit better, trying to work out how to balance that qualifying performance to their race performance. Uh, their power unit is kind of back on song after their year last year where they were very much, you know, um, literally off-grid with the uh, the power unit performance that they had there. So again, I, and, you know, and equally another historic team, it, you know, it's kind of always good to see them really performing. Um I call them Sauber, but they're actually Alfa Romeo, aren't they? I think they've made a bit of a step this year. Again, their car last year was all over the place, um, and they've not been able to do an awful lot to it. But they've worked with their aero team and with their wind tunnel and understand the problems they've had. And they've now got a car that's quite racy, isn't it? You know, it's you see Kimi make those starts and have some of those late race fights. Uh, you know, he's particularly sore in, in Austria, despite you know, the shunts. Um, I, I think that that has been quite interesting as well. So a car visually that's very, you know almost indistinguishable from last year's car, but somehow they've just managed to get what looks like similar aero working. You know, I think that's always quite fascinating. And it's more about the process than than what you're actually looking at. So, you know, despite there not being any great innovations this year, I think we have seen, um, you know, some really good engineering work from the teams to bring their performance up to the levels that they were perhaps lacking last year. What about Haas? Yeah, Haas is almost, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, I, I, I think in my heart, I root for every team because I think you know, all of their problems are only ever down to budget, you know, getting the right engineering people in there and the opportunity. And I think Haas have been brave to enter Formula One in the way that they have. Um, I don't know if they've come in with the, the right long-term plan because of the way they have approached manufacturing the car, but, you know, that's the way they want it to work and it's caused them problems. But this year is, you know, almost indescribable. We're going to barely update last year's car. We're not going to update it through the year other than a couple of little bits that we've already seen and then just that's it really. And I can't think of a situation, even all the teams that, you know, when, when I've known that in, you know, behind the scenes that you can't really talk about, um, out loud to people or on social media that they've not been able to pay for their CAD licenses and they've only been able to develop two wings in a wind tunnel because that's, that's all the money that they've got to play with. You know how hard the teams work to try and bring something to the car through the year. And Haas have just come out and said, well, we're just not going to do that. And it's, I can't think of a situation ever before where that's happened, um, you know, when there was potentially the money there. So it's, it's, it's odd. And in fairness, their performance, while in, is very poor, isn't quite as bad as perhaps you would expect because they're not always the last ones on the grid. And while perhaps in the race they do tend to drift back, and I think that's a lot to do with the, the, the driver pairings and maybe some of the, the race engineering plan, uh, decisions that the team make, um, you know, maybe it's not as bad as it, it looks. But um, you know, they're really going to have to bounce back for 2022 to really see the payoff for what they've done this year. Um, and, you know, you would hope that their backers, whoever they may be, um, you know, see that as well, because it would be horrible to see Haas disappear over the winter or uh, emerge from the winter as maybe a, a different structure, a different set of management or something there. So I hope that they do survive and they do, you know, show a better hand next year with these new regulations. But, um, 
yeah, it's um, it, it's disappointing to see a team approach a year in that fashion. You did raise a really interesting point there about costs. This year, the new cost cap, how much of an effect do you think that's going to have or has it had so far on the development of cars and also just um, the way the whole team operates? I mean, it's, it's definitely um, having an effect. Um, you see the teams complaining much more about when their cars get damaged by, you know, something on the track side, curbs, what have you, when the drivers have big accidents, you know, perhaps caused by uh, uh, someone from another team crashing into them or what have you. Um, it is a factor. And for the teams that have had unlimited budget, it is a really big factor. So, you know, I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but you do wonder how much Mercedes are struggling this year because they've got this massive operation. And let's face it, they've probably been spending more money in Formula One over the past few years than, than any other team uh, to go racing in Formula One, suddenly being squeezed into a, a much smaller uh, budget uh, is going to have impacts. And, you know, they've been quite vocal about it in various ways, quite subtle, but, you know, they've been mentioning it. So, yeah. And then you get to the other end of the grid, like Haas and that, and it's like, pff, we don't, you know, we've barely got that much money anyway. So a budget cap doesn't make a lot of difference. Um, I think it will start to really bite through the season next year because when everyone comes out with these new cars and everyone's going to have a very different approach to these new regulations because you know, there's lots to be uh, interpreted with these new rules. They're very hard to understand, very easy to find a, you know, an odd interpretation of how these rules are set up to create some you know, aerodynamic advantage with these cars. And as the year goes on, you know, you're going to have the lesser teams um, with um, more wind tunnel time. And that's a slightly a fact this year, but you know, even more so next year. And, you know, Red Bull and Mercedes, much, much less wind tunnel time, really having the cost cap biting into them. You know, it should bring the, the teams together. And there's lots of ways to be very creative with the accounting and uh, how you manage headcount and uh, budgeting with this stuff. But um, it should start, start to squeeze some people next year. And I think you'll hear a few of the team principals get really kind of noisy about this next year and start lobbying about, oh, this really isn't Formula One, this really isn't fair. And I think we know exactly the, the characters that that will be. <laughs> um, um, but certainly, as I think, if you get into the back end of this year, especially if we do hit that 23 race target, which is looking quite difficult now, but, you know, um, they've got, I think it was the budget was $145 million for 21 races with um, a small addition for each additional race. I think if it suddenly does stretch out to 23 races, some of the teams are going to be really tight at the end of the year. And I think there could be, you know, some of those penalties uh, apply to some of the bigger teams, especially if you have, you know, some big shunts um, that create lots of damage. Um, or perhaps like these rear uh, Pirelli constructions force teams to have to maybe redesign uh, aspects of the rear suspension or the rear aerodynamics. So just, just quickly then, uh, finally, the 2022 cars, obviously such a big change is happening. Will we see better racing? Will we see 20 cars battling for the world championship? What are you expecting to happen? Um, oh, uh, let's see, how can I answer that? Um, I think what you'll find is these are the first regulations almost ever in Formula One, perhaps almost ever in any form of motor racing that have actually been designed by a group of engineers where they've come up with a concept tested it, and then applied those rules um, almost without um, any 
amendments from teams and lobbying and bits and pieces. We had a, something a bit like that in 2009, but that was even then watered down slightly and was never followed up completely um, by the overtaking working group as it was then. So these new rules really should allow cars to follow much closer. So that's the fundamental thing. However, simultaneous to that, you've got very different new regulations. Uh, you've got these new low profile tires to cope with, which obviously throws up all sorts of complications with tire management, with suspension, with aerodynamics. Um, and you know, aero regulations, as I say, are massively open to some interpretation here. Um, I think what you'll find is that the field spread will get much bigger. Everyone's kind of squished up a bit this year because everyone is kind of almost running a, a visually very similar car. Next year, they'll all look very different, lots of approaches. And at the start, everyone's going to be spaced out because there'll be some that don't get it right and some that do. Um, so I think there'll be more field spread. But when you're racing against the car that's of a similar performance, you will see that being able to get much closer um, hopefully been able to overtake without DRS through corners, all that sort of thing that we we really want to see. I think there's no value in a DRS overtake. It's almost, you know, mm. um, a get out of jail free card, I describe it, especially in a race. If you're stuck behind someone um, for 20 laps. You've got 20 attempts in each DRS zone to kind of overtake that person. That's not, you know, that's not, for me, that's not a fair racing because eventually you'll, you know, something will just go right for you. Um, so the overtaking should be better, but I think there will be the haves and the have-nots next year. So it won't be a case that you'll see horses battling with Mercedes, you know, on a regular basis. Um, it won't be like that. But I think it will certainly be another really interesting year. The racing should be a, a lot better um, as long as we don't start getting involved with some of these ridiculous penalties. <laughs> oh, that's a contentious one. So, I mean, yes. it does sound like a lot to be excited for. But mm -hmm. obviously the last time there was a major regulation overhaul was 2014 and Mercedes have walked it ever since up until this year. Are you worried we might see another similar kind of thing? Where obviously now we have two teams battling for the world championship. Are we just going to see one team dominate for a few years until we get that field closing up again? I think that with, with a big rec change, there's always a chance that someone will just get everything massively right. Um, Mercedes did, as you say, in 2014, and there's lots of reasons. And again, we could almost have an entire podcast about what Mercedes did right to get to that point in 2014. Um, they're not in the position to do that again, because it is not such a whole scale change of the cars. Although it's a big change, it doesn't include the power units, which obviously was a big factor. They're carried over. Um, if you think back to 2014, how bad some of the other power units were, you can see how Mercedes were able to get onto the front foot so 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 much easier than everyone else um but um i think you will you will i don't think that the order will be shaken up massively and i think if someone like a williams or a haas you know find a solution that's like amazing you know kind of the brawn double diffuser thing i think despite the um the the budget cap and the aero restrictions i think the big teams will be able to take that date design change on board very very quickly um, and find any lost performance by, you know, interpreting that that other solution. So I don't think we're going to see a big shakeup. Um, if anything, maybe you know the front two teams may be joined by another couple of teams. Um, I think that's what the way it would probably work. And then there may be a bit more of a bunch of a midfield, and then a couple of tail enders um, out there somewhere. But um, yeah, I, I I don't get the feeling that this is uh, an opportunity for someone to make a big leap that would last for a full season. I mean, even if you think back to 
2009 and Braun with the with the double diffuser and the rest of the clever aero that that car had. By mid-season, you know, lots of other cars were just as quick as them, had copied all of those solutions. And, you know, Braun really were hanging on by the end of the year. So if you use that as an analogy, um, I think it still poses that we could have a really open championship and potentially a championship that goes through phases of different teams dominating, which I think is almost more exciting than, um, you know, uh, one team going all the way through to the end. Well, this has been really amazing. I actually can't thank you enough because firstly, <laughs> I am so excited for 2022 now. <laughs> All your predictions have got me so excited. But as well, I just, I always struggle a bit more with the technical viewpoints within the cast, but already just hearing you talk, I feel like I'm learning so much more. I don't want it to end. Yeah, that'd be great. I feel like I've learned so much in the last 40 minutes. I just feel like I've, I've been a sponge. I've absorbed it all in. And now I know my ERS from my DRS and my end plates from my... <laughs> I don't know the front wing. But I've learned so much. But anyway, Craig, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on this week. Like I said, me and Charlotte feel enlightened and ready to conquer the world of Formula <laughs> 1. But, yeah. No, thank you both. Thank you, thank you for inviting me on. And you know, there's some challenging questions in there. And um, you know, I think we're all we're optimistic for um, a better Formula One uh, through the rest of this year and into the, the upcoming years. That was really interesting. I mean, he he brings up a lot of points that you know we would have had no clue about there. That was some detailed stuff that he was talking about. Uh, I don't know, as soon as that conversation ended, I felt 10 times smarter than I already was. And he was using this, I can't lie, he did say some words that I'm not too sure what they meant, but I still feel like I understood it because he's like a this amazing, amazing, knowledgeable man. And I'd, I'd have loved him to be my teacher back in school. So he's an Emily Sanday fanboy and a Craig Scarborough fanboy. Who can blame him, honestly? Do you know, I just, I just love a lot of people. I'm just here to spread positivity, really, guys. <laughs> We need that. We need that after the 18 months we've had. Hopefully England can do that next Sunday, but we can drink. Anyway, that is all we've got time for on this week's show. Next week's show will probably be a little bit earlier in the week than normal, as a few of us are heading off to Silverstone, and we will do Silverstone race predictions and talk all things Silverstone next week on the show. Jay, thank you very much for this week. We'll see you next week. Um, do you know what? I was going to say, I'm really gutted to go to Silverstone. I know you guys are going, and to see you guys there is going to break my heart, but... I wish you good luck, meet up, spread the love, spread Emily Sanday love, and I'm looking forward to next week's podcast. Charlotte, thank you very much. You are going to Silverstone. I am. I am going on Sunday, and I am so, so excited. I can't even begin to describe. Aren't we all? I'm there from, I'm there from Wednesday, and I'm just praying that the weather is a bit better. And at the moment, it's not looking great. Um, but we can just hope. We'll see you all on Sunday, and then we'll see you for this show again next week. Goodbye. Podcast Network.